I'll start today by uh, giving you what was told as a joke. It's one of those old, tired preacher jokes, which usually are not funny. Uh, and so I'm not trying to be funny with this, but it just kind of gets us in where we're going. As it goes, this uh, particular preacher, well, see there, I just blew the whole deal. So never mind about that one. Let me tell you about a friend of mine, okay? Uh, the, the deal was supposed to be at the guy who didn't want to go to church. You know, his wife said, you got to go. And he said, I don't want to go. Nobody likes me, all that. Well, you, if you don't go, you're the pastor who's going to preach. Um, <clears throat> see, I told you it wasn't funny, and it's really not even funny if I tell it right. So um, take your Bibles and go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I have a friend who is a pastor, and... Um, a number of years ago, he was going through a particularly rough stretch at his church, and uh, he had uh, one guy in particular that was just eating his lunch all the time, and uh, so this friend of mine went to his mentor, and uh, he was giving him the lowdown on it and how it stretched out, and it was this long series of confrontations, and things weren't going well, and, and my friend, his mentor said to my other friend, well, what you need to do is you need to let me buy you a cigar, teach you one cuss word, and go let you spend an hour behind the barn using both of those. That's, a, that's exactly the response I had. How does that help? Uh, maybe you have to be a preacher to appreciate it. I don't know, but here's the deal for you, okay? You don't have to be a preacher to be hurt by church people. You should know before I even get started, this whole message is not about me being hurt. That's not it. Teresa will tell you, I don't have any feelings, therefore you can't hurt them, okay? So that's not what this is about. What I want to do is I want to take the whole focus of what we've been singing about today and what we just saw in video form, and I want to shift it, okay? I want to take the foundation that's been laid today, and I want to shift it this afternoon, this morning. It won't be the afternoon by the time we're done. Uh, I want to move our focus to... Not so much being the recipients of God's love, but rather the responsibility we have to be the dispersers of God's love. Now, that's a tough topic. I don't mind telling you that this is a tough sermon. I told Teresa before I came up here, this is one of those crack you between the eyes kinds of sermon if you happen to have a trouble uh, have trouble in dealing with love and your fellow Christian. Why is it that Christians are so good at hurting each other? I think one of the, at least one of the reasons, and there's probably a bunch that we could use to answer that, but one of the reasons we're so good at hurting each other is because we deny who we are. Let, let me explain. As a matter of fact, I'm going to spend most of the sermon explaining what I mean by that, but um, last week I was in John 3.16 and it's one of those favorite passages we had one of our uh, members this morning in the early service come back and say man I just love that verse you should preach the whole verse instead of just half of it like you did last week well what I want you to get from the half that I got was God's love is so incredible for us and we are recipients of that love that it has to inform how we view ourselves But if all we do is seek to be consumers of God's love, then we miss part of the equation. And when we miss part of the equation, particularly who we are, then we fail when it comes to being dispersers 
of God's love. How should we behave as Christian people? That's a question that, you know, we might have a pretty quick, easy answer for, but I'm not so sure that it's one that there is a really good, quick, easy answer for that is comprehensive enough for us to really do it. How should we behave? The reality is that we have all kinds of parts of our lives where we have adopted a Bible belt kind of cultural awareness that we can say we should behave like Christians behave and we can do that and deny who we are. Anybody can act like a Christian, but how should a Christian act A number of years ago, I couldn't find the book that I read this in, otherwise I'd give you more of the specific details. But the gist of the whole thing in the book was this, that when the intelligence quotient test, the IQ test, was being developed, one of the things they had to do was to trot it out and make sure that it uh, was accurate across cultures. And so they took it to a group of American Indians And when they took it in there, they gave them, they sat them down in there, a handful of them in this classroom, and they said, okay, here are the rules for this test. Uh, You can only work on your own test. You can't work together. Keep your eyes on your own paper. Don't copy your neighbor, all that. You'll be as dumb as he is if you do that. You know, that was the whole thing. And so they sat down, and they started taking this test. And as soon as the person in in the classroom who was overseeing it, the proctor, As soon as the proctor said, okay, you can begin now, they started talking among themselves. Hey, what do you think about this first one? What do you get for the first one? And the proctor backed up and was like, what did I just hear? And they're just having these discussions all over the classroom. They start turning their desks and looking at each other, taking this test. And he said, whoa, 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 you can't do that. This is an individual test. You can only take it by yourself. They said, okay. He said, okay, go back to it. They started talking again. What did you get for number three? And why, what did you, how do you understand this word? And they start, and finally the proctor was so upset with that, he said, just stop. What are you all doing? You cannot do that. You can only take it by yourself, not as a group. When he said that, they all got up and started walking out the door. And he stopped one of them. He said, what's going on? And here's what the, this American Indian said. In our tribe... What the individual does is not important. It is important for us in our tribe that we do together what we do. That is a statement of awareness that comes from knowing who they were. See, the Christian life, as much as it is built around community, we try to do it on an individual basis. We live for Christ on our own. I want us to look at some passages today as we jump into this new series. I I want us to get the how should we behave, but based on this idea of the identity that we have and how we're supposed to handle it, I want you to look, here's the way we've written it so that maybe I can emphasize. How should we be and then have is just set off, okay? The behave is still one word, but I want us to talk about how we should be. At the deepest part of who you are as a Christian, how do you behave? Understanding who you are in Christ, how do you behave? How should we be? 
So with that in mind, we're going to come to a passage of Scripture here in just a moment. I've got a couple other things I want to say before we get there. But what I want you to understand, we came out of this study that I did for five or six or eight or how many weeks it was on the nature of the church. It is critical at the beginning point of a church on mission to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ that we understand who we are as a people. The nature of the church Uh, And as we we saw in that extended study, essentially it comes down to this. We are the body of Christ. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's not up to you or to me or to us to make it happen. This is God's church, the body of Christ. Well, that being the case, and with that comes the marching orders that he has given us, which is to make disciples... The way we choose to do that matters. How do we behave? But the behave part follows who you are. So let's look a little bit about who we are. And let's talk about the standard for the Christian life and Christian living. One of the things that we better get right is the love that we have for each other. Here's a good truth for us to hang on to. The way we treat people, okay, let's take it off of the we. This is a good time for me to just go ahead and put it down there right in your seat rather than all of our collective seat. The way you handle people and treat people directly influences their willingness to hear God's voice and respond to his offer of life. You get that? Let me run it by you again. The way you and I treat people directly influences their ability and their willingness to hear God's voice. That's true internally for us as a church. Look around this morning, okay? This is one of those times the preacher gives you permission to rubberneck in church, okay? Look around, see who's wearing what, see who's here. Here's what I want you to notice as some of you are still a little bit nervous of doing that, you kind of say, I don't know if this is really... All right, if I told you there's one really ugly person here, now you can look and try to find them. Don't forget to start up here. Look around. And I want you to see the people who are not here because they got hurt in church. Every one of us knows somebody who has been totally torched at church or by church. This is a problem that we find in the churches of the 21st century in America. And I suppose they're true other places. Matter of fact, I'm fully convinced of that because of where we find ourselves in Scripture here, as we'll see in just a few moments. I want to come back to this truth. The way we treat people directly influences their willingness to hear God's voice and respond to His call for life. Churches are not full of people who just won't come anymore because somebody in the name of Christ, torched them. We've got to get this love thing right. And one of the things that we're going to find as we work our way through this series, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13 in this series for a number of weeks now, 15 different times there, Paul says, love is, and then he'll give us a descriptor of it. 
15 different times in a handful of verses. So instead of trying to give them all to you in one or two sermons, we're just going to slow down and we're going to take them two at a time so that you have plenty to work on all week long trying to get this love thing right. There's a number of reasons we should do that. And today's whole message is really designed to help you understand why we need this. We've got to get this right. Internally, we suffer, not just us as a church, but all churches in the 21st century American society. We suffer from this idea that says, because I believe it and I have a position of some kind, I can tell you what's wrong with you. The problem with that is, there's a lot right with that. I'm not saying we should never do that. I'm just saying one of the problems with that is some people can't hear that without being offended. I like what one guy said. You being offended is just an indication that you cannot control your own emotions or thoughts and you expect me to do it for you. Now, some of you are offended that I said that. (laughs) This is tough stuff. But it grows from the reality that says we love to talk about consuming grace and love of God, but when it comes to passing it out, uh, it's just maybe a little more optional for us. The problem with that is that's just not a true statement. It impacts us internally when we don't love people the way we're supposed to, but it also impacts us externally. Stories told of a pastor who brought an evangelist in. It was one of those weeks full of, you know, preaching and evangelistic services and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, those happen in the evenings usually, or they used to when we used to do that kind of stuff. And so during the day, the pastor and the evangelist always kind of hang out and they do stuff, you know, uh, go eat together. In this particular case, they were at a restaurant. And this, by the way, is a true story. And the pastor went to this restaurant, took this evangelist with him. And when they got there, things were not really going well at the restaurant. Short staff that day, and you know, a lot of things were going wrong. And so this poor little girl who was waiting on the pastor and the evangelist uh, was swimming upstream anyway. I mean, it just was not a good day for her. Everything was work. And then on top of that, she gets this self-righteous preacher at her table. And nothing is right. It, it took them forever to get seated. And so on their way to sit down, the pastor's just gnawing on her. What well, took you so long? What's the problem here? You, we should, you know, he's just gnawing on her the whole time. Sits down. The glass is dirty, so he wants another one. He drops his fork. She didn't get there fast enough to replace it. This whole deal. So it's just this long thing, and he is just hammering this waitress. Finally, the evangelist, after watching that for a while, Pastor sent the waitress off on another errand and the evangelist looked at him and he said, I dare you, after all that's been going on and the way you've been talking to her, I dare you to share Christ with her when she gets back. See, it's one thing to be a consumer of love. It's another thing totally to be one who dispenses it. It's not a new problem, in case you think I'm just picking on Crestwood. It's not a new problem with the church. This is one of those problems that has been historically one of our big problems. That brings us to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a letter, and actually some would tell us it's a kind of a compilation of letters, uh, First and Second Corinthians together. Maybe there were several different approaches. Whatever they want to believe about, that's fine. The bottom line is the Corinthian Christians were actually spread out over the city in multiple house churches, and they started having problems. And one of their big problems was they were people. And their people problem 
kind of got into their mouths and it got into how they acted with one another. And so one of their big deals, as Paul says in the first part of the whole book, you, you got these divisions. And so one group says, well, we're better than you are over there. And the other group says, no, we're better than you. But, well, we may not be better than y'all, but we're certainly better than this other group over here. And that's the layout for the Corinthian churches. And Paul writes into the midst of that and he says, you got it all wrong. Well, actually, they had a lot of stuff all wrong. First, Corinthian churches had to be the first Baptist churches ever. They were so dysfunctional. And so Paul writes into that and he says, we got to get this right. And one of the reasons we have to get this right is because it's killing you internally, like we just talked about, but it's also killing your witness in the, com- in the community. And so the book of 1 Corinthians is a series of responses that Paul has to a sick church full of people who are full of pride. Chapter 12 gets to this discussion about worship and it's it's part of a bigger discussion of worship and he gets to spiritual gifts and he's talking to them about the importance of spiritual gifts and each one should operate in their spiritual gift. But the reason he goes there is because they were setting themselves off against one another. One guy was saying, well, I can speak in tongues, so that makes me more important than you. Or I have this gift or that gift. And it was instead of pulling them together, which is what the uh, gifts were supposed to do, Uh, It was dividing them. So Paul writes into the midst of that, and he clarifies spiritual gifts. All of that gets us to our text for the day. In chapter 12, verse 31, the second part, Paul says this, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Before I read any further, let me stop there and make sure you get this. He has just been talking to them. I'm going to show you a more excellent way than the way you've been living, divided, and fighting all the time. The more excellent way is spiritual gifts and order and worship. We are the body of Christ. That's his more excellent way. But we get to verse 31 and he says, and now there's even a still more excellent way. The writing here, the Greek of this particular place, is written in such a way that it jumps off of the page. Paul says there's a whole nother level for you out there. Let's go there. That's verse 31b. So we get in now to chapter 13, verse 1, where he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a danging, clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains even, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So what Paul is doing here, let me just summarize those first three verses of chapter 13. Paul says, with all of those gifts, let me even take it a little more into the background of the whole book. Paul identifies in these three verses the main points of struggle in that church. He's already been in the process of giving them answers to those struggles. Here's how you should behave. But he said, if you do all of that and you do it on a high level and you don't have love, then you just waste in space. That's a huge statement. For a guy like Paul who was so interested in how people behave, for him to back off from that in the middle of that discussion, say, now let's talk about how you be. Be loving 
in the way you deal with one another. And we're going to get to, as we go forward in verses 4 and following, all these different descriptions of what that love looks like. But before we ever get there, we have to make sure that we nail down this truth. We have to operate in love with one another. One of the things y'all did for us when we came here, Teresa and I, almost three years ago now, y'all gave us a pounding. And uh, in case you don't know Baptist life, that's uh, where we come in and they uh, bring stuff. People, the churches, people bring stuff. Preacher just moved, so they kind of stock the shelves, right? Uh, and see, now I lived for 20 years down on the Mexican border down in deep south Texas, right? I can cook mean fajitas, all right? I can do that. Um, what I can't cook is Cajun food. And so some of you helped me out with that before I ever got here, all right? You can tell by looking at me that I like to eat, and so surely he'll like Cajun food. And so, uh, so you did that, and so you brought me some of the stuff I needed uh, to cook some Cajun food. And so one day in the office, we had a guy come by, and he was selling fresh Gulf shrimp. Now, I didn't trust the fresh part of that description because I came from the Mexican border. It had probably been on a truck for four months before it got there. So in this case, I asked the ladies in the office, is this like fresh? Is it safe? And they said, yeah, it's a great deal. You should get some. So I got some, and I thought, okay, I'm going to put some of those uh, Cajun spices that y'all brought me, bought me to work, right? I didn't know that you're supposed to peel shrimp before you cook them and eat them. <clears throat> but that actually saved me a little bit, not much, but a little bit, because somebody, some smart, I mean, some loving person in our church gave me a spice deal that is called Slap Your Mama. (laughs) You got to love that, right? Somebody else gave me one that is the sequel to that one, which is called Punch Your Daddy. Now, wisdom, wisdom says, if they put that title on a spice, proceed with caution. But I came from the Mexican border. For 20 years, we were eating jalapenos and, you know, the, the spiciness of all of those chilies and all that kind of stuff down there. I can deal with spice. Oh, my goodness. I cooked those things, and I thought if a little bit of slap your mama is good, a lot must be good. So I doused. Every time I flipped them, I doused them, and I flipped them a lot. We got in the house, and Teresa took one bite of that, and she looked at me like, you're going to die. Okay. <laughs> I didn't pick up on that. So I, took, I stuck one of those things in my mouth. I was so grateful that the <clears throat> shell of that shrimp was still on it that uh, I got that full dose of slap your mama and I wanted to die. It was hot. You see what spice does to food? Spice has a way of taking, and y'all have proven this to me, those of you who cook and allow me to eat some of your cooking. Uh, I've had great food since we've been here. Now, you can overdo it with the spice, but spice, especially Cajun spice, has a way of just jumping into your mouth. It's so good. As spice is to food, so is love to life. That's the principle here. That's what Paul is saying to these people. You're learning to do the religious ritual. I will continue to help you behave that way, but love 
is the key ingredient to that. And if you do all of that religious stuff well, but you don't have love in the middle of it, you're wasting everybody's time. In fact, you may be just doing damage to the cause. When we get love right, we create an environment that enhances growth. I want you to let that sink in. And here's why it's so important. This is why, or one of the reasons I'm going to take some extended time to work through this. You know, for the last six months, I've been spending a lot of time doing damage. Well, now see, I want to say damage control, but that would kind of imply that maybe I was controlling something. Okay, This is often out of control, doing damage response in relationships between church people. Now, we shouldn't necessarily hear that and go, well, you don't like the church. That's not the deal. We're just people. We have issues. And in our dealings with one another, so often we buy into the way of the world that says, you get your place, you get your position, you build uh, walls around it, you defend it to the death, and if somebody comes at you and it doesn't fit that, then you attack them. Whatever else you want to call that, you cannot call that Christian behavior. And yet so much energy in churches these days is spent doing that kind of repair work. In management, we call that sideways energy. You got all the stuff going into it, but it's not taking you forward. You're having to inject energy into the situation, but it doesn't take you anywhere. So we come to this, and Paul came to this. And that church, in that critical part of the mission of the early church there in Corinth, Paul says, you're killing yourselves and the cause because you just won't love each other. Let me tell you, if it's true enough for Paul in those churches, it's true for us. We have to get this right. It's not enough to be a consumer of Christ's love. By definition, if we consume it, he expects us to dispense it. Here's why that's important, to be a church on mission, for us to be what God calls us to be. Look at your menu that you got when you came in there at the top, underneath the heading, in that part that nobody ever reads. There's a state, I think it's still there, I didn't read it today. I just said, if you're listening, okay, we're halfway through, or a little more than halfway. Uh, Okay, look at our mission, the vision statement that is on there that disperses into the communities of Southeast Texas and beyond sharing life. If we don't get this love thing right and we happen to be successful in sharing life and somebody happens to wander into one of our church services and they see that we don't love each other, we've killed the cause of Christ with that. Can you imagine going to the delivery, labor and delivery section of one of our local hospitals and watch a doctor as he delivers a newborn infant? He takes that infant and hands it to the nurse. Can you imagine that nurse taking that child and going and sitting in the bottom of a deep freeze and closing the lid on it? We would bring that kind of person up on charges, wouldn't we? Because we know that's not conducive to life. It's dangerous for the health of the baby. Don't think that God doesn't look at his churches that way. God will never take a newborn Christian child of God and stick him in a deep freeze church. 
He expects his church to be an environment of warmth and love that enhances growth. So let's take another step. Remember the definition that I gave of love last week. Let's build from this. And I know some of you are freaking out going, man, he's still going. and We're almost done, actually, so hang in there. Last week I gave you this definition of love. If love, well, not if right now. We'll get to the if in a minute. But love is investing yourself into another so as to elevate them beyond their ability to elevate themselves. That's a good working definition of love. Jesus, John 3, 16, last week, Easter, you remember that? He is the best picture of that. God investing himself in us. It's not enough when we say we love somebody to love them passively where we don't have any investment in them. That's not love. Love, according to the way Scripture uses this term. By the way, it is a uniquely Christian term in Scripture. Don't find the noun part of verb as we find it here. Don't find it in any other or not very many other ancient Greek writings. It's a very Christian word. It makes sense. Because Jesus came to turn the world upside down because of the love of God. And it's investing. It has to get out into the life of the other person. But when it does that, that love elevates that person to a place they could not ever get to themselves. Let me just stop and apply that in your marriage. Those of you who are married, your spouse ought to be a better person because of your love. Now, I know some of you out there just made the trip. You just made the trip that said, well, of course they were. They were nothing before they got to know me. That's not what I mean. That's not what I mean at all, all right? You should be investing in your spouse in such a way that you take them or they go places that you could, they'd never do it without you. One of the reasons we have so many fouled-up marriages is because that takes both people doing that for it to work right. So many marriages are built on the world's definition of love, which is not what I give, it's what I get. And you stop giving me what I wanted, so I don't love you anymore. Aren't you glad God doesn't deal with us that way? So if love is that, then how should we describe the opposite of love? If love is this investment, then what is the opposite of love? Now, when, normally when I ask people, what do you think I get? What's the number one answer you think I get in response? The opposite of love is hate. Well, that's true enough. It might very well be the opposite of love, although I think there's more to it than this. But how far do you have to look in our world today to find hate and evidence of it? Just within the last week or so. Didn't we find that up somewhere up north? And some white supremacist went out into a crowd full of Jews, actually didn't just go out, he found them and decided because I don't love you, I'll kill you. You don't have to look very far in our world to find that. Matter of fact, you might not even have to look outside of this room to find that. Is there anybody who might possibly show up today that you could, if you're just thinking about them, makes you mad? So it might be hate. Could be another set of Deals. Opposite of love might be to diminish that person or to dehumanize that person or maybe to just totally disengage from them. See, the, the deal with love is love 
invests, it reaches. Whether the person deserves it or not, whether the person wants it or not. Now, we're going to talk a lot about the characteristics of love as we go through this. Love is not this milk, toast, sappy kind of thing that says, well, you know, I love you. I'll keep doing this while you abuse me. That's a whole other discussion. We're going to come to that in the discussion that Paul gives us here. But our tendency sometimes with people like that is just say, well, you know, I'm just going to do just whatever. You do whatever you want to do. I'm, I'm okay. Here's what I think is the better, maybe all-encompassing kind of the opposite of love is to just flat be disinterested. I don't care whether you live or die. I don't care if you prosper or not. I don't care if you're hurting or not. I don't care if what I say to you hammers you and cuts you to the quick. I don't care. Just being disinterested might very well be a good opposite of what love really is. So here we go. Love has to be a priority for us. It has to be a priority for us. One of the reasons that's true, John chapter 13. Spencer's got it. You don't have time to turn there. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Listen to what 34 says. By the way, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. He's on his way to the cross in John's gospel by this time. And he's getting his disciples ready to be gone or for him to be gone. He says in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Let me stop there and make sure you get that. Jesus did not say, if you feel like it, go ahead and love them. Jesus says a new option. Is that what it says? A new idea. Let's blaze new trail here. Why don't you give this a shot, see if it works. That's not what Jesus says. This is in your face, crack you between the eyes. I demand that you love one another. That's tough. That's way tough if it happens to be people that you're dealing with. I was reminded again over the last 40 years how much people really are hard to love. You know what I mean by that? For 40 years, I remember now what my dad meant when he said, you don't have to be a cannibal to get fed up with people. <laughs> Is that not true in your experience? You know, it, life would be great if it wasn't for all these people. You know what? We don't have the freedom of just leaving them out there. Jesus says, love them. Well, actually, he's talking to his disciples, so love each other. Yeah, but Lord, if you just knew... That dude, he is a punk. Jesus says, yeah, I know. I died for that guy because I love him. Verse 34, here's the deal. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know what I think, I'm, I think he means by that? I think on an application basis, if we get this right, if we get the love part of this right, first of all, one of the things that will happen is he'll send his babies here. You're a little bit concerned because baptisms aren't where you think they ought to be? Well, first of all, maybe you should ask yourself, how many people have you led to the Lord lately? But secondly, maybe you should ask yourself, why isn't God sending his babies? If we get it right, he says, by this will all people know been part of churches. I've seen churches that get the love part right internally. People in the community, they don't know what to do with that. 
man, I don't know what's going on with that church over there, but man, I mean, there's this stuff, stuff going on. Got to start sending those people. You understand, I'm not here trying to build a big old church. I'm just trying to say we're supposed to do this. This is fundamental to the nature of the Christian life. Fundamental. We had not even gotten to master's level stuff. This is just first grade. Love one another. So back in 1 Corinthians 12, that's where Paul says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. It's hard to put into translation what that says. I'm going to show you as it relates to exceedingly the best way. No matter how religious your footprint is, if there's no love in it, it doesn't count. When we get it right, we can expect in our own lives things will be different. It is a much better way to live when you live motivated by love. What people think about you doesn't matter as much. What people say about you doesn't matter at all. Better on a personal level, it's better as it relates to their life. And ultimately, you help people see who Jesus really is. I love this example. It came from Leonard Sweet. Uh, he is an evangelism professor in an uh, evangelical univers- uh, seminary. And I've been reading this book called Nudge, which is his discussion about evangelism. It's, you know, don't go beat somebody up with an argument and a Bible. Just see what God's doing in their lives and kind of attach to that, and it opens the door to share Christ with them. And here's one of the things he said about this thing about the world and what they see. Uh, this lady, it's a true story. Lady's name was Alice, and she was a receptionist at a church office. And uh, her habit was when the phone would ring, she would answer the phone this way Jesus loves you. This is Alice. How could I help you? Well, one day, Things were not going all that great. She was a little bit discombobulated in what was going on. And so uh, some of her coworkers were there, and she was frustrated, and the phone rang, and she whipped over. She grabbed the phone, and she said this, Alice loves you. This is Jesus. What do you want? (laughs) Now, here's the golden line of that illustration. The person on the other side said, well, I really was expecting you to sound different. Let me tell you something. That's what the world would say to us. They expect the love of Christ when we talk. And when we don't talk that way, I'm not talking about the way you behave. I'm talking about who you be. When we don't talk like that, their answer is, I really expected you to sound differently. So, How's your love life? This is one of those sermons really easy to hear for somebody else's benefit. Wives, did you hear what he said? He's talking to you. Actually, the husbands are the ones doing that to the wives, right? And the kids to their parents and the world to the church. Let's pray. Lord, this is not easy for us. So quickly and so easily we just go to the standard that the world has, which is me first, only me, always me. So we need your help with this. We need you to help us 
treat people the way they need to be treated for the gospel's sake. Right now, we pray that you would work in hearts on personal levels, that we would hear your spirit as you uncover those areas of our lives that are very unloving and help us right now to confess those before you, repent before you, and move forward with you because of the forgiveness that you have that is based in your love. As we go to this invitation time, I'm going to ask you all to stand, if you will, heads bowed and eyes closed. What do you do with a message like this? I would encourage you this week, starting now, to work your way through what love looks like in your experience. What are you expecting from other people? You just have to know that if you're expecting it from other people, you've missed the point of the whole sermon because this is not about what we expect from others. This is what we're obligated to give to others. So look at your life. How loving are you? How is your love life? Let's sing together. Invitation time. You come, whatever. I'll pray with you, counsel with you. If you don't know Jesus, you want to respond to the Father's love given through Jesus Christ. That's the beginning of love right there. We'll talk about that, whatever. Now's the time for decision. You come.